Mark 1, 9-13, if you have your Bibles. I hope that you do. If not, you can use uh, one of ours. This is one of those texts that I really want you to see what I'm saying because uh, it, it's, it's a way of thinking about the Bible as a whole that we're going to talk about today. And it helps if you're looking at it with me. So you know that, oh, Blake didn't just make this up. No, it's right there in front of you. Mark chapter 1, 9-13. And what we're doing today is we're getting back into our series on depression. Called it the Desert of Depression. Now, in the first two installments of this series, we focused on uh, your physical body and how that can contribute to things like depression and anxiety, and that's very real. We're not Gnostics. In other words, we actually believe that the, the body matters. Uh, and then in the second part, we looked at the psychological causes of depression. That a lot of times the reason why we're depressed is because of what's going on inside of our head. And really, for most of us, if you're going through a season of depression, it's probably both of those things. That's my daughter. And <laughs> she says, I'm supposed to be the center of attention. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be fun. Uh, but w- what it always is, is it is a spiritual issue, which is where I feel I'm most qualified. So this is where we're going to end the series. And I'll just tell you up front, today is not going to have a satisfying ending. Uh, because what we're going to do today is simply define our term. I want to define to you what is going on when depression is happening, whether it's physical or psychological, whatever. Well, this is always happening in the spiritual realm when it is going on in your life. And uh, the reason why I say it's not satisfying is because I'm going to define it, and I'm going to open a can of worms, and it's going to lead to a lot more questions, and I don't have time to clean up the worms. So you're going to have to come back next week. And I tell you that because I want you to come back next week, because if you leave, you'll leave, you leave more depressed if this is the only message you hear in the series. And we all know this, right? Like if you go to the doctor and you've been trying to find a disease for a long time, you've been sick for a long time, and the doctor finally gives you an answer, well, there's a certain amount of relief. Oh, okay, I know what's going on. But what does it also do? Well, I've got 20 more questions. Is there a cure to this thing? Can I give it to my children? You know, how did I get this disease? Well, the same thing's probably going to happen at the end of this message. I think you're going to be kind of illuminated. You're going to think, wow, that's kind of cool to think of it in this way or that way. But you know, I'm not really going to put the puzzle pieces together for you. So what we are going to do is we are going to look at this definition. And I hope that you understand why I made this my definition of spiritual depression. Here it is. I'll give it to you up front. Depression is a wilderness. You could say wilderness or desert. I use those terms uh, interchangeably. Depression is a wilderness journey that some believers will face in life. This journey is a battleground where God feels far off and Satan attacks the promises of God. And this is a pattern that you see all throughout the Bible. And it is perplexing. God gives us a promise, and then he allows Satan to attack the promise. It's actually kind of disturbing a little bit. We see it in today's text, and I want to look at that. So we're going to look at that pattern. First, we're going to look at the promises that were given to Jesus. I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, Lord willing, because I talked about some of it last week uh, when we were talking about Pentecost Sunday. But then we're going to move into this idea of how Satan attacks these promises, how God allows Satan to attack these promises, And then I want to end by showing you how depression is the perfect desert for Satan to attack the promises of God in your life. And then, if there's time, so you guys don't leave totally depressed, I'm going to try to give you something hopeful to take home with you. But the hope might be left out, so just buckle up. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much that I am standing. Uh, God, weeks like this remind me uh, of the gifts of simple things like being able to breathe and being able to stand and being able to think God, things I take for granted in my everyday life. And when I get sick, I remember just how small of a man that I am, how I am like a blade of grass here today and gone tomorrow. And yet, Lord, you love me enough to use me. You love me enough to call me your own. 
You love me enough to make me a little less than the gods. God, thank you. And thank you that you do the very same for these people before me. God, we know that those whom you have justified in Jesus Christ, you will one day also glorify. I pray that this message would be encouraging and insightful to those who need it. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Mark 1, 9 through 11, uh, it says this, verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. You remember last week we said the reason why Jesus was baptized was not because he needed forgiveness of sins, but because we need forgiveness of sins. Baptism is signifying the fact that when we go down into the water, our old self is dying, and what we're leaving behind is all of that dirty, nasty sin water. So when Jesus goes into the water, perfectly pure, he takes on our sin. And when we come up out of the water, we come up out of the water as Jesus. So all the things that should count for Jesus count for you and I. That's what our baptism represents. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And the reason why we believe it is true is because it is based upon the promises of God. It's what God promises us at our baptism. And that's what we see here. Jesus is going to be baptized, meaning the, the promises that are true for Jesus in verses 10 and 11 are also true for you at your baptism. Whether you feel them or not, when you were baptized... This is what God said is true of you. Now, the first two are two that we talked about quite a bit last week, so I'll go through them rather quickly. But the first is this, is we have access to heaven. We have access to the sanctuary, to that place where God dwells. Uh, Verse 10, it says this, Mark chapter 1, As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn, being ripped open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Uh, That is a very powerful image. The heavens being ripped and torn. It's not like this soft little, you know, like my zipper on my shirt just comes. No, it's ripped open. He's seeing into the throne room of God. And this is exactly what happens for us. Through the death of Jesus, the veil that was keeping us from the Holy of Holies, the place where God is, has now been torn in two. In fact, that's what it says in Mark 15, verses 37 and 38. It says, Jesus let out a loud cry. This is when he's dying for the sins on the cross and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Torn in two. Perfect access to God. But as we said last week, we don't get to experience that fully on this side of heaven, on this side of eternity. We get glimpses of it, but we aren't fully experiencing what it is to be in the presence of God. But the good news is, is that God not only opened the veil, he sent something to us. And that is the Holy Spirit, which is the second thing we are promised at our baptism. We're sealed by the Spirit. Uh, you'll notice that at the end of verse 10 when it says, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I don't want to belabor this point too much because we spent all last week talking about the Spirit. Go back and listen to the podcast if you want to hear more on that. But there are two major things that we get from the Spirit, and that is that we are sealed by him. Uh, Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. And that sealing is what gives us those two things. We have a down payment and we have power that protects us. Philippians 1.6. This is a beautiful promise. And it's made by God, so it cannot be broken. It says this, Paul writes this. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And we ought to say amen there. I'm not in charge of my own salvation. I'm not in charge of these promises being made sure that they are true. God says, I'm going to do it, and I trust that God will be faithful. And not only that, but he gives me a down payment on what is to come. Ephesians 1.14, it says the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. It's a foretaste of what is to come until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. 
At your baptism, that's what you are promised. You might not have even known it when you were baptized in the name of Jesus, but it's yours. You know why? Because you were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when something is done in the name of Jesus, it is sure. It is a promise that cannot be broken. Verse 11 gives us three more of these promises that God gives us at our baptism. The first is this. We are beloved. We are beloved. Look at this in verse 11. It says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. Now, this is amazing, friends. You are loved by God. Now, this is hard to believe. And for some of you, it may be even harder than others of us. God does not simply tolerate you. He loves you. You are his beloved. He sees you the way I see my daughter. She is my beloved. I I like your kids, but I love my kid. That's the way that God looks at us. He loves us. We are his beloved. That is amazing. Because we were once, by the law, far off, enemies of God. And now through Christ Jesus, he is our father and we are his beloved. Now, the uh, fourth promise that we see in Mark 111 is this. We are sons. We are sons. Verse 11, it says, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, here, uh, modern liberal feminist uh, theologians, which those words should not ever be put together, but they, people put those words together. It's like corn nuts. There's no corn or nuts, but they call them corn nuts. Neither uh, <laughs> here nor there. Uh, you know, they'll tell you the Bible is sexist, and we need to we need to change uh, the, the way that these books are or these words are translated, and say you are sons and daughters. But what those knuckleheads don't know is they're ruining the entire text. They're ruining the promise when they say that, because a first century woman would have loved to have been called a son. Do you know why? Who is the heir? The son is the heir. The women were not heirs. The women hoped to marry well. That was their only hope. And God says, not so in my kingdom. (laughs) In my kingdom, there is no male, no female, no slave, uh, or free, no Greek, no Jew. No, we are all sons in Christ Jesus. Meaning, and this is mind-blowing, we are all heirs of the promise. Galatians 3, 26-29 says this, for through faith you are all, men and women, sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are. You're not saying you might be. No, what does he say? He says, you are. This is a promise. You are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. And in Ephesians 1, 5, we see that this was always God's plan for his people. It says he, being God, predestined or saw to it. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is one of those truths that is so mind-blowing, I can't fully comprehend it, which means I can't fully speak it over you to tell you what it means. But here's what I know, is that if you have a parent that makes you an heir, what you want to know is what that parent has to give you. There are better parents to be heirs of than some. You know, if my parent has a whole bunch of debt, I don't really want to be their heir. But if my parent is a rich man, uh, a rich woman, then I want to be their heir. Well, God is the richest of all. He owns everything. 
So next time you're passing the Rocky Mountains, you can look at those things and say, I own those. Everybody's going to look at you like you're crazy. No, no, I own those. I'm an heir. One day, I am going to own the Rocky Mountains. That's how mind-blowing this promise is that is given to us at our baptism. These promises are astounding. We are heirs of everything. Your future, Christian, your future is full of hope. The world is dark and it feels hopeless, but you, you are a son. And if you are a son, you are an heir. That is the promise that is given to you. Number five, and this is the hardest promise for me personally to believe. I wrestle with this all the time in my own mind. God is delighted in you. God is delighted in you. Uh, Verse 11, it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I don't like the CSB here and the way they translate well pleased. Well pleased to me sounds kind of cold and wooden. You know, it's it's like, I'm I'm well pleased. It's perfectly acceptable. Uh, Next time your wife cooks you a meal, say that you are well pleased and see if she ever cooks it again. It's just not, probably not the compliment that you want. And I don't know why they did that, because all the other translations really uh, say this in a much better way. I'll read you just a few of them. This is what God is saying of Christ, and for those of us in Christ, this is what he's saying of us. You make me very glad, the NTE translates it. The NLT says, you bring me great joy. The message says, you are the pride of my life. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is the precursor to the Bible that we read, says, I take delight in you. Now, that's really hard for me to believe because I don't take delight in myself. If I have a critic that is the worst, it is the one that lives inside my brain. I can't imagine how anybody could take delight in me. And yet that's exactly what God does. He takes delight in me. I was thinking about it this week. God seeing me is the way I see my daughter. Uh, I, I just love her. I just take delight in her. Whatever she does is awesome. She started new tricks every week. Uh, you know, this, this last week she started clapping. She doesn't know how to move both hands, so she holds one hand stationary and just beats the other hand. And I love it. And, and she got a shocked face now, so everything is shocking. We turn on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, and there's Mickey, and <gasps> you know, she sees me in the morning. <gasps> I mean, everything is shocking. I, I love it. It's awesome. It's just life is shocking, man. And, and she's all over it. She started waving, but I don't think she's really waving, but we think she's waving. She just waves her hands, got wild in the air. She laughs when you do it back. I just love it. Now, if you clapped like that, I would think something was wrong with you. <laughs> but I take delight in my baby girl. And I take delight in her in a way I don't take in with your kids. Some of you are bored hearing me talk about my baby. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> just like you don't care, because I take delight. Now, friends, do you believe that God sees you that way? That's hard for me, but that's the promise that was given to me at my baptism. As I stumble through this thing called life, I take two steps forward, five backwards, fall, roll around in the mud, and God says, that's my boy. I take delight in you. Now, if I ended the sermon here, wouldn't we all be happy? It's like spiritual cotton candy. You'd be like a fat kid with an ice cream cone. So happy. Beautiful day. We can go golf. God loves us. Everything is good. But what did I say at the beginning? The promise is always attacked. In fact, if we look at verse 12, it kind of changes so abruptly that it might hurt your neck a little bit. After the promises are given in 9 through 11, verse 12, it says, Immediately the Spirit, not Satan, but immediately the Spirit drove him, being Jesus, into the wilderness. And that word, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, is not like, you know, they got in the Cadillac together and, okay, Jesus, have fun out here getting tempted. No, that is the same word that is used when it talks about Jesus casting out demons. 
with the same kind of force that Jesus is going to cast out demons. The Holy Spirit cast him into the desert to be tempted. Wait a minute, you said I'm your beloved son. That's, I mean, I wouldn't throw my daughter into the road after saying I love her. And yet that's exactly what God seems to do. He throws us into the wilderness. That's what he does to Jesus. Uh, verse 13, it says, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. And now here I must remind you again of the limitation of a sermon. I've got 25 to 35 minutes to tell you what I need to tell you. This would probably be a better seminar where we had like four hours and a lunch break and I could answer your questions. <laughs> we don't have that though. We have 25 to 30 minutes. So there's a lot of questions I can't answer. But I do want to encourage you to come back because I've got three weeks left, give or take, Lord willing, uh, until I take my summer break. And so we're going to spend the rest of the time answering these three categories of questions, I believe. Uh, and the first is this. You know, why does God allow Satan to attack the promises? That's probably the most terrifying part of this text. Why would God allow it? You know, shouldn't he be protecting us from Satan's attack? Well, we're going to look at why God allows this and how it actually works out for our good in the end. Number two, you might want to ask yourself, why does Satan, 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 why does Satan, why is Satan hating? Man, I'm rapping. Uh, I don't know what that pill was I took. Why does Satan hate us so much? And how does he attack the promises? At first, I thought it was a prenatal pill. <laughs> so, I was like, oh no, what's that do to a man? But I don't know what I took. Uh, the third, <laughs> what am I supposed to do in the desert where the promises are being attacked? And this is probably the real question if you're depressed. You know, am I going to be there forever? <laughs> is there a way out of there? Especially if God's the one that drove me there. Do I have any hope? And the answer is yes, you have hope. But I'm not giving it to you today. <laughs> Come back later. What I want to do for the rest of our time is look at this idea of the wilderness desert and explain to you why I think depression is the perfect place for Satan to attack the promises of God. Uh, it's very important that uh, it mentions where Jesus is tempted. He's tempted where? He's tempted in the wilderness. Now, the Bible uses wilderness and desert interchangeably, but this is a huge theme in the Bible. Uh, God gives a promise, and then before the promise is fulfilled, there's a desert and a wilderness right smack dab in the middle. And in that desert wilderness, the promises of God are tested and doubt begins to creep into our mind. This is why the Bible says we have to live not by sight, but by faith. And faith is tested in this wilderness desert period. Now, I would define it this way. The wilderness or desert is the space between the promise being made and the promise being fulfilled. It is the place where the promise is tested and attacked by Satan. You can think of it this way. I, uh, I know for a fact, unless she took me out of the will, uh, that I'm in my grandmother Wendy's will. I know I'm an heir. I know there are some stuff that I am going to get. It's, it's legal. As soon as she dies, it comes to me. Again, unless I make her mad or something, or I already have, I don't know. But I, I know that at one point in time, my name were on legal documents for things that I was going to get. The promise has been given, but it has not yet been fulfilled. There's a time coming when that promise will be fulfilled. But I live my life as though I'm going to have those promises. Why? Because I trust my grandma, Wendy. I trust the one who's given me the promises. But I haven't seen them fully yet. And that is exactly what happens in our Christian journey. All of those promises I gave you, I took you up on the mountain, they sounded great, don't they? But on Tuesday afternoon, do you experience those promises? Not fully. They've been given, but you haven't gotten them fully. Why? Because you are in the wilderness or the desert. And in one sense, all of life is the wilderness. All of it. And in another sense... Inside of this life that is already a wilderness desert, we have the fun option of having more deserts that are even worse than the normal desert of life. One of which is depression. 
where the promises are specifically attacked by God. Uh, 1 Peter 5-6 through talks about this theme too. It says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You've got it. You're guarded by power. It's through faith, but it's not revealed yet. Verse 6, You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, and that short time Peter's talking about is your entire life. That's the big wilderness that we're all walking through. And it is a short time. When you think about 30,000 years from now, you're not going to remember this 80, 90 years, 40, 50, whatever God grants us to have in this life. It is a short time. But this whole thing is a wilderness. But then there's also specific deserts. If necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. That's our little deserts. Now, here comes the unsatisfying ending that I so promised you. If uh, stopping a sermon, if the conclusion is supposed to be like landing a plane, we're going to do a crash landing. Uh, it might not be super pleasant. But as we come down, I have to make you aware that Satan wants to destroy you. And if you or your loved one struggles with depression, it probably, most and more likely, has some physical aspects to it. Probably more than likely has some psychological aspects to it. And we need to work on those things and treat those things as serious. But it always, especially for you, Christian brother and sister, always has a spiritual aspect. And this is what is happening. Satan is testing your faith to get you to doubt the promises of God. What Satan wants you to do is he wants you to begin to ask yourself, maybe my baptism wasn't right. Maybe that Blake guy shouldn't have been the one to baptize me. <laughs> maybe he didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe I did something so wrong that God voided these promises for me. Maybe, maybe, maybe. He wants your faith to begin to slip away. And is there any better way to get you to slip away from that faith than depression? Think about what God says to you at your baptism. You are beloved. What does depression say? I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like anybody loves me. God says, you are a son. You are an heir with a future incomparable to these present sufferings. And what does depression say? You have no future. All you have is darkness. You can't even get out of bed this morning. What does God say? With you, I am well pleased. And depression looks at us in the face and it says, how could anyone be pleased with me? I am broken beyond repair. And what does Satan do? Same thing he's always done. He's only got one trick. Same thing he did in the garden. He whispers in your ear, did God really say? And we begin to doubt the promises of God. And we begin to wonder if maybe the promises aren't for us. And we are tempted to begin to live by sight rather than by faith. This is what Satan's doing. He's tempting you. I'm telling you, whether you're in the desert of depression right now, you know somebody who's in it, this is what is going on in the spiritual realm. Your faith is being tested. So what is depression? And if the band wants to go ahead and come up, I'm going to land the plane. Same, the definition I gave you at the beginning, I hope it makes more sense now, is depression is a wilderness or desert journey that some believers will face in life. Not everybody will. We all face deserts, but some of you have to face this desert of depression. This journey is a battleground where God feels far off and Satan attacks the promises of God. Now, with my remaining time, I'll give you two pieces of hope. Number one, I do think that this is very helpful to know because you're going to expect it when it comes. I made a huge mistake uh, when I was a youth pastor, went to Falls Creek the first time. I didn't know I was making the mistake at the time, but I was. We had a kid who had had a really hard life, and uh, he came, and, and God uh, really did a, a number on his heart throughout the week. He went forward, accepted Jesus Christ. Everything was great. And uh, 
This young man had the idea that everything was going to remain great. That with Jesus, everything is perfect. That it's always a carnival ride. Well, we got home and a few days later, his mother died. Tragically, unexpectedly. And that shook his faith beyond repair to this point. Now, can God chase that boy down? You bet he can. I pray for him all the time. But my failure as a pastor in that moment was to not warn him of what always happens. We are giving a prom- we're given these promises, and then these promises are attacked. It's what happens to all of us. You cannot avoid it. We are in the wilderness. The promises of God will be attacked. Now, God is doing something, and we'll talk about that later. But this is what is going to happen. And so now I want you to know that if you're in this situation, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because those promises aren't void. It's happening to you because it always happens to everyone who has received the promises of God. Let me end with one more word of hope that I already told you about one of those promises, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said? Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6. This is what you need to do when you're in the desert of depression. We'll talk more about it later. You need to cling to the promises of God. You hold those things dear. You say them to yourself. You sing them to yourself. You have other people sing them to you. You have other people say them to you. You've got to cling to them daily, hour by hour. And here's one of the best ones, Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. I am certain. There is no doubt that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for that promise. God, I pray today that somebody could cling to that. I pray today somebody would maybe begin to understand that there is more going on in this desert of depression than just merely what's going on in their body, what's going on in their mind. That there's a very real enemy that hates them and that is attacking the promises that you have made. But God, as sure as Jesus lived and as sure as he died and as sure as he rose again on the third day and ascended to the throne, we can be certain of the promises you've given us. And friends, if you would, with your eyes closed, head bowed, take about 10 seconds. Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message?